This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here by myself today for our interview episode, the last before Oscar nomination voting kicks off. And I got to talk to two directors of two of the biggest movies of the year that really could not be more different, which is a part of what made it such a pleasure to talk to both of them. So first, let's hear from Joseph Kaczynski. He's the director of Top Gun Maverick, which you certainly know uh, is one of the biggest hits of 2022, a long-awaited sequel to Top Gun that many people, Tom Cruise seemingly included, maybe never thought was actually going to happen. He's talked about how he had to pitch Tom Cruise on even making Maverick. And Tom Cruise was really kind of a partner in making it and even talking to him with some of the actors, as we talk about in this interview. And some of the most fascinating things to talk to him about were parts of the movie that changed as they were making it and how even though they storyboarded all these aerial sequences in such detail, they still had the ability to tweak it in the edit and move things around. And it really proves how putting together a movie this huge takes a lot of adjustment and also confidence in what you're doing and faith that the audience will respond to to it as they absolutely did. Uh, so let's hear my conversation with Joseph Kaczynski. So Joe Kaczynski, uh, thanks so much for joining us to talk once again about Top Gun Maverick. I know it's been your job for about a year now, so thanks for continuing to do it. Of course, always, always excited to talk about this film. Um, so on this uh, podcast episode, I also talked to Baz Luhrmann, and he was uh, looking back to CinemaCon, and when he brought Elvis, and I believe you were there in person with Top Gun Maverick, and Tom Cruise was remote. Um, what do you remember about that screening, where it was the first time it showed for anybody, and, and the stakes of that event going into it? It was like this big debut. I, I have to imagine there were some nerves involved there. Absolutely. I mean, I hadn't seen the movie really in in almost two years at that point. Wow. You know, the last time I had seen it was within a test audience. Uh, we finished the film in 2020. So to see it with a real audience for the first time, Glenn Powell was there with me, was, was very memorable. And that was the point where I thought, maybe this movie's gonna gonna play because I remember the laughter. I remember the people sniffing, you know, through some of the, the more emotional scenes. And the cheers and the clapping and we came out of that and Glenn and I looked at each other and it was like it was it was quite an experience. Yeah. I mean, so I, I talked to Eddie Hamilton, your editor, a little while ago, and he talked about finishing the movie in the pandemic, basically, because it was supposed to come out in the summer of 2020. And you had had some test screenings. But then when you finished the movie, it really was you couldn't have an audience. So you, you he, he described it as really having to go with your gut. And I wonder what that entailed for you of knowing that it would play that way. Uh, well, we knew we liked the movie, um, <laughs> so we made the best version of the film we could. Uh, yeah, I finished the movie basically from my kitchen, um, which was pretty intense, and and went you know then would go to Fox and in a room with like three people and listen to the mix. Um, so it was it was a really drawn out kind of weird way to finish the film, but at the same time, it gave us the time we needed to make sure that every shot was perfect. We didn't have to settle. You know, we mm -hmm. didn't have to compromise. So in some ways, that extra time we got, those few months, I think were good for the film. I mean, a lot of people talk about Tom Cruise really pushing to hold the line to put this movie in theaters, not put it on streaming. What was your role in that? Were you in those same meetings to saying, no way, we're holding this? Did you kind of back channel with Tom and say, like, here's our strategy for getting them to, to respect us? 
Yeah, it was mostly me just having conversations with Tom. Yeah. Um, because, you know, we'd set a date and then we'd get close to that date and it was clear that theaters weren't ready to reopen. So he would he would call me and say, you know, we're going to have to push again. And, you know, he, he reiterated, he's like, we made a movie for the big screen. Uh, this is a theatrical movie and um, that's how people are going to see it. Yeah, I remember he said to me once, he's like, Joe, I will hold this movie forever if that's what it takes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, whatever you say, Tom, I, I, I support 100 percent. I agree with you. You know, we made this movie to be seen on the big screen. It would be a shame to to release it any other way. So it was hard to hold on to it. But I'm just so relieved that we were able to release at a point where people were ready to come back. Yeah. And, and they did. And the amount of people that come up to me and tell me it was the first movie they saw in a theater in two years. I can't tell you how many times that's happened. And that's a really gratifying thing to hear. Yeah. I mean, did you have a process every week when the box office numbers would come in? Did you have like a ritual for reading them? Did you try not to read them? How do you handle that? Yeah, I didn't. I mean, it's hard to escape it because the studio sends you reports on a daily basis. Yeah. Like there's an email that comes in every morning at like 630. So, you, you know, you, you're always aware. But for me, I wasn't really focused on it. Um, I was just, again, I was really just relieved that the film played and really enjoyed hearing people's experiences and stories about seeing the movie. So many people told me stories about seeing it with their dad mm -hmm. um, or their grandfather or their kids or the whole family going together. And that is kind of, to me, the reason we made it. So that was a really wonderful uh, experience. You didn't have like a billion dollar party or anything like that? Or you know what? <laughs> we Jerry Bruckheimer did throw a billion dollar party. Okay, good. Uh, at, at his house with... with um, everyone who was in Los Angeles. And it was a wonderful way to celebrate with all the people who put so much work into it. Yeah, I think I think you get to celebrate on that level. <laughs> so was pretty cool. Least. Yeah, I'll never forget that. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Um, so when I talked to Eddie Hamilton, he was one of like the most fascinating stories he told me was about some direction he gave to the actors where talking about the flying sequences and asking them to kind of really exaggerate their head movements so that it wasn't just this really boring visual of the actress sitting there, which is what a real pilot would do. Um, and I thought it was so interesting that he was able to offer that direction and that that was the collaboration that was happening on set, that the editor is there on set talking to the actors. Um, and you obviously have to facilitate that. Can you talk about why that was possible and why that's something you seek out in, in how this movie was made? Yeah, well, we were shooting those aerial sequences from in Fallon, Nevada, at the actual Top Gun airbase. Um, and because this aerial footage is so hard to get and so precious to have that time in the jet. I actually had Eddie bring his editorial room to the airbase in a trailer that was inside the hangar. And right next to that, we had a, we called it a buck. It was essentially a model of the F-18 cockpit. Uh, and then next to that was the briefing room. So every morning uh, we would get up startly. I would go in with Eddie and we'd review all the footage that we had gotten the day before we talk about what we needed to get. Then we go to the briefing room, which had all of the actors and all of the Navy pilots. And we'd go through all the day's work, starting with safety and weather, but then going through every single shot that we needed to get. Everything was generally storyboarded or pre-vised. Um, we'd go through the script and we would literally have every actor talk through exactly what they were going to get that day and make sure they understood camera position, head movement, eye lines, all of that. Then we would go to the rehearsal buck where the actor and their Navy pilot would get in together and I would sit there and go through all the scenes and we would do all those things you're talking about, eye line, head movement, putting their mask down, tapping their helmet for sound, turning the cameras on and off. And uh, as soon as, so they go up, they'd shoot, they'd come back, we'd put the footage right into the editorial and Eddie and I would be able to review it and that's where we'd be able to give them instant feedback. And uh, so we were able to give them notes, like you said, that like head movement something that might feel like you were you were you were looking around uh, when you're in the jet didn't always translate to 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 picture so mm -hmm. we were able to give them feedback very very quickly so having editorial in the production loop on site was something we had to do because it'd be very hard to go back and ever get that footage again and the last yeah. thing i wanted to do was end up on a blue screen 3 months later picking up lines because we didn't get it for real. So um, yeah, it was it was incredible to have Eddie uh, out there and, and be a part of the process. Yeah. I mean, so 
Is that where you, like you have a day and you have one actor who's going to go up and do it, and then the next day another actor comes in and do it? Like, is it that broken down into pieces? Uh, no, we would do. Um, we would fly two jets at a time, so two actors would go up in the morning, and then another two would go up in the afternoon. Usually, so we would fly four uh, interior cockpit flights a day. There was one day where weather was coming in. We were shooting up in Washington State, shooting the third act sequence, which is the snow sequence. And we had spectacular weather, um, and Tom had already flown two flights that day. And Tom, putting his producer hat on, came to me and said, uh, Joe, we got some weather coming in tomorrow. And I was like, yeah, I know. He said, you know, I think I can go back up and do a third flight. And if I do that, you know, we know we'll have great footage. I'm, I'm worried that if we wait till tomorrow, we might get weathered out. And I said, you're right, but three flights in a day is exhausting. I mean, even the Top Gun pilots would do two. But Tom felt like he could do a third, and he went up and flew a third sortie uh, and got that third act sequence where you see Maverick go in and, and hit the target. So mm. um, that was the most flights anyone did on a day, and of course it was Tom. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we did weeks and weeks and weeks of it. Some days we'd only get you know, a minute of footage that, that was worthy of being in the film, um, but there was just no other way to capture the footage that we were we were going for. There's another third act sequence that Eddie was talking to me about where they're in the canyon and they've got the enemy kind of on their tail. And what Eddie said is that it had been filmed as the reverse, that um, Maverick and Rooster were going after the enemy and that in the edit, yeah. it got turned around completely. I think off of Tom's idea is what he said, which seems bananas to me that you can possibly do that. Uh, can you talk about that, how that yeah, worked? Yeah, that was, that was, so I had kind of choreographed this entire dogfight um, between the uh, fifth gen fighter um, and the uh, F-14. Um, and yeah, it involved uh, originally Maverick chasing the uh, fifth-gen fighter into that canyon. And after we watched a, a rough version of it, it would probably been half shot. Uh, yeah, Tom, it probably was Tom who came up and said, hey, what if we swapped it around so that Maverick's in more jeopardy? So um, Chris Lebenzon, who was the editor on the first Top Gun, yeah came in and he and I sat down while Eddie was working on the other part of the film. We recut that whole sequence in a day, um, mocked up what the reverse would be like uh, if, if we swapped it around and um, ended up with the sequence you saw in the film. Um, yeah. So it's just an example of, you know, you make the movie when you write it, you make it when you shoot it, and then you make it again when you when you edit it. And that was a case where uh, we discovered that that the uh, a different approach would would result in in better storytelling and um, to have you know the editor from the first film who cut the original uh, footage uh, to work with on it was was really uh, really a fun thing for me. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after The Regime airs. So you've got these flying sequences that are so meticulous and storyboarded, and you've talked to the actors ahead of time. You know everyone's head movement. So then when you get something like the bar scene or the beach football scene, are you able to cut loose a little bit more? Are you allow, do you allow for more, not improv, but just more looseness in what you're going to get on the day? Certainly beach football. Um, you know, we did choreograph what dogfight football, what, the, what it might be. We had a professional quarterback come in and work with the— uh, <laughs> stunt team and the actors for a few days. Was he like, of... this makes no sense? Why would you do football like this? Yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he, he was he was a little uh, confused at first. But um, <laughs> but once once he understood what we were going for and the storytelling of it, um, he uh, he choreographed some plays. And um, and that for me was, yeah, it was less about uh, it was about telling the story, but also it was about just going out and, and letting the actors have fun because it was all about team building. Uh, and 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 capture that, you know, and, and for me, it was about getting at that perfect time of day. So it felt like a Top Gun movie. So we had like an hour and a half window 
uh, on the two or maybe it was two and a half days of shooting total. Um, and just let the actors, you know, do their thing. The, the story I remember from that is, you know, Glenn Powell, I think had waited his whole life for this moment. You know, <laughs> it had all come to this point for him. And he was so excited to to shoot this scene that on the first play of the first day, he pulled his hamstring. Oh, God. And was instantly out of the scene. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's just... <laughs> so so the first day we shot, I think Glenn Glenn wasn't in any of the footage and was just on the sideline icing it and just distraught. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, made up for it on day two, uh, as you see in the film. And, I was about just, to say, I feel like he's in there somewhere. <laughs> oh, no, no. He came back with a vengeance and, uh, yeah, and crushed it. So, um, but yeah, really, that was a fun, fun sequence to shoot. But then I guess the scenes in the bar are pretty choreographed because you've got so many people and so many like camera angles. Like maybe it's it's more rigorous like in like the flying scenes that I'm realizing. Yeah, for sure. No, bar scene is is as intricate, if not more than any action scene uh, in the film. That is a puzzle where each piece had to be figured out. And it was all about, you know, you're introducing all of those people, but you're trying to maintain Maverick's point of view. Mm-hmm. throughout it. So all those eye lines, making sure that you're clocking him, um, watching him observe all these people come together. So that was that was the th- probably the scene that we spent the most time writing and rewriting and probably changed the most uh, over the course of the film, just because we really changed the Maverick Penny storyline um, halfway through. And that's Ooh, the what, scene that Wait, what was it up. originally? Well, originally, uh, Penny and Maverick had not seen each other since mm. um, 1985. So you ended up with him seeing, you know, a character that he hadn't seen since he was, you know, 18 or 19 years old. And what we found after shooting it that way and putting the film together was it was just there was too far for that relationship to go from not having seen someone in 36 years to where we wanted to get to at the end of the film so that's when we came up with the notion of this is an, a relationship that's been on and off for decades. And, and now at this point was the time where Maverick was going to and Penny would be ready to finally, um, you know, connect in a more meaningful way. So uh, the bar scene is the kickoff for that. So mm-hmm. that's that's why it required kind of so much tweaking to get it yeah. there. Yeah, I'm curious about your your history working with actors, because you've talked about how making movies in architecture school kind of made you realize you wanted to do this. But that's not working with actors. And you go into making feature films and it's kind of learning how to capture performances in that way and work with what they're bringing to it. And I wonder about what you've learned about it over the you know decade plus that you've been making movies and then what you kind of learned about it making this movie. Like what 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 did you learn about directing actors making Top Gun, I guess? Well, what I've learned uh, over the five films I've made uh, is that casting is 80% of the job. Mm. If you cast the right actor, you've really set yourself up for the possibility of making a great film. If you if you don't cast it correctly, you've, you've really put yourself in a position that's going to make it really, really hard to get there. And um, uh, so casting is, is so important. And I was very lucky in my first, you know, film that I got to start off kick it all off by working with Jeff Bridges, who is, was an incredible uh, supporter and mentor for me on my first film. So to kick off with him and then go to Tom Cruise for my second, I've just been, I've, I've gotten to work with amazing people in, in, in all my films, you know, since then I've just, you know, you see, I've worked with a lot of the same people, you know, two or three times yeah. and, and just found that that relationship between the director and the actor and both being on the same page um, is is so important to making a great film. Is working with Tom Cruise on a original story like Oblivion different from him playing Maverick? I mean, he's obviously attached to the character in some way, but is is what he's bringing as a performer different? Certainly, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Oblivion was my world that you know I uh, somehow convinced him to to step into, and, and certainly it's always a collaboration with him. But Top Gun. Uh, that's his world. That's him and Jerry Bruckheimer. They created it. Uh, so when Tom says, you know, this is what Maverick or d- would do or or that's not Maverick, um, he's the authority on that. So yeah. I'm going to listen to him. You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, I mean, certainly always have my point of view. But um, 
this is a world that the two of them created and along with Tony Scott. And um, so I was bringing certainly my own ideas and, and stories and point of view into it, but it's, it was different because this is, this is a world that they've, you know, lived in for, for decades. Yeah. I mean, so then when casting the younger pilots, which is the newer element of it, you really can have any combination of people being the the younger ones. Where do you start that casting process from? What are you looking for? Yeah, well, the first one was was Rooster, obviously. Um, yeah. I just worked with Miles Teller uh, on Only the Brave and just knew him to be a fantastic actor. And I had a hunch that he he could do all the things that Rooster required. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was someone I talked to Tom about right from the very first meeting on this movie. Because Rooster, I imagine, was a pretty set in stone character when you started casting. Like you knew what Rooster was going to be like. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. We knew. Yeah. We knew what his uh, that he was going to be in the emotional core story of this film, and and that obviously him being Goose's son, that he would have some qualities of both his father and his mother Carol, um, yeah. who are both such great personalities in the first film. So Rooster was there, you know, was Miles was someone I was talking about. But then after that, it was, you know, Denise Chamian, our casting director, brought me hundreds of faces. And I read dozens of actors for each of these roles. And basically, I would narrow it down to kind of my top two or three. Then I would sit down with Jerry and Tom and we'd watch those final choices together and, and discuss. And, and that's how we came up with this incredible cast, which, um, you know, after they had all been through the flight training and the naval swim training together, they became this cohesive unit that you just feel in the film when you see them walk in the bar. You just you feel like they know each other and, and that they've been through things together because they had at that point. Yeah. Um, I know that the way you guys have talked a lot about the practical effects in this movie, with good reason, because there's so much work put into it. But, you know, we've got the Oscar shortlist. It's on the visual effects shortlist. Is there anything that you're, you know, more willing to talk about now in terms of the visual effects and the digital part of it, maybe now that it's been out for a long time? Or are you still trying to keep some of the trade secrets to yourselves? No, no, I, I don't I don't I don't keep any secrets. I mean, the truth is it's it's a it's a hybrid of live action and uh, visual effects techniques, but it always started with a real photographic plate. We always, uh, whenever we could and whenever we could do it safely, uh, shot the aerial action for real. Now, obviously, there is a lot of aircraft in this movie that we don't have access to, you know, mm. and some that don't even officially exist, like Dark Star. Yeah. Uh, so, and, you know, F-14s, they were decommissioned in 2006. They don't fly anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this film, they do. And that's the beauty of, of the magic trick that is movie making, is that if you can figure out a way to do it in a way that the audience doesn't know the difference, you can do something really special. So we always started with real photographic plates, but oftentimes we were shooting F-18s or L-39s. And then we would use these sophisticated digital techniques to reskin that aircraft with something else mm-hmm. and we and and we did it in a way that because you're using the movement and the lighting and the environment and um, the actual camera movement uh, when you're when you're capturing that shot when you reskin it it feels like a physically captured shot because 90 percent of it is and uh, you know the best visual effects often go, uh, unnoticed and are invisible. And I think that's what we were striving for in this film. Is that F-14 sequence at the end with Rooster and Maverick? Is that what you were doing? You had a, a different plane that they were in or is that more um, visual effects? How'd that, how'd that work? Yeah, it's a mixture of uh, visual effects, but we never shot an F-14 flying. Yeah. Everything on the runway is a real F-14. We pulled one out of a museum uh, a literal museum piece, which is it what is a Rooster calls piece. it. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 yeah, there's truth to that. Uh, we, we, we shipped it. Uh, we drove it across state lines. It had some administrative issues along the way because it is still considered a, a military weapon. We got it to Lake Tahoe. We put it back together. Uh, and everything you see on the ground, including going down the runway at speed, is in that real F-14. But, yeah, the moment that F-14 takes off, uh, it was in reality, it was an F-5. Mm. Um, uh, or an, and then at certain points it was an F-18 and at certain points it was an L-39, but reskinned always to be, uh, an F-14 in the final film. But they were up in, they were up in the air for that scene the way that they are throughout the rest of the film. When you see a shot of a single pilot, when you see Maverick or Rooster by themselves, they're in a real plane. If yeah. you ever see a shot where you're seeing two of them at the exact same time, 
That's a visual effect. Well, you know, that was a really basic question I have because I watched the movie again and I so believe all of them flying these planes. And then I have to remember, no, there's a real pilot actually flying it. Is it just about putting the camera in a place where you're not going to see the the actual pilot? Or is there more trickery just to make it so convincing that they're alone in those jets? We had four cameras in the back seat facing backwards at the actor. And then we had two cameras in the front seat looking over the shoulder of the actual Navy pilot dressed Mm. in the exact same helmet and uniform as the actor that they're carrying in the back seat. Got it. So when you're looking forward over the shoulder, it's that's actually a Navy pilot um, you're looking at who has the same haircut, helmet, and uniform that the actor's wearing in that scene. So uh, you're not always looking at an actor in the movie. We even went as far as when you're looking forward over Maverick's shoulder, there's two mirrors that are like rearview mirrors in the cockpit so pilots can see what's behind them. Mm -hmm. When you look in those mirrors, if you freeze frame it and look at that plate, you'll see we put Tom's reflection in those mirrors as well to further make sure that the uh, magic trick was, was complete. So... Um, we worked very hard to, you know, make it look like it, what it would look like if they were really flying. But there was always real Navy pilots um, flying each of our actors. And I promise this isn't a trick question. Like, there is no sequel talk officially yet, right, for Top Gun? There's uh, there's sequel thoughts, you know. Certainly <laughs> well, how, can, how can you not, right? You have to think of it Yeah, listen, point. people ask me enough and it's like, it always comes down to story. Can we come up with a story that justifies going back? What would that be? And that's the reason why Jerry and Tom waited 36 years to make Maverick is they were waiting for the right story. And yeah. um, I feel very lucky that, you know, I, I had a part in in making that happen. So um, certainly you think about it and there's always there's still, I think, a lot more story and, and characters out there to explore. And the world of aviation to me is always fascinating and there's always new things happening. So certainly the imagination kind of is always going. But um, but it's yeah, really up no, to Tom, right? Like he gets to decide if there's an There is one. no Top I can't imagine how you'd make a Top Gun movie without Maverick being in it. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So you'd have to, you know, you'd have to convince Tom. You'd have to convince Jerry and and. If you got the two of them on board, then I think everyone else would probably give you a thumbs up. I don't know if you can wait another 35 years, but I don't put it past Tom Cruise to be flying jets in his 80s. He'll be, or yeah, he'll be doing be. it. I don't know what I'll be doing at that point. Um, but, yeah, Tom will still be out there doing something, I'm certain. <laughs> Have you gotten to see the new Mission Impossible or, or parts of it? I've seen pieces of it. Um, mostly, you know, I think most of the stuff I've seen is probably out there by now. But I did, I did get to get some sneak peeks from the guys and yeah, everything I've seen looks spectacular. Do you ever look at any of the stuff he does in those and be like, God, I should have had him jump out of a plane. <laughs> now Chris McQuarrie's doing it. No, no. It's like I've, I, you know, I've made two films with Tom and I know the stress that comes with putting him in those situations. <laughs> so it doesn't seem to stress him out, but it stresses everybody else out. Huh? He loves it. That's the thing. You know, it's like even in Top Gun during some of the most intense stuff. It looks like he's wincing in in effort, but I know for certain that he's smiling under the mask. And, you know, luckily the mask and Top Gun hid that, but he's having a blast up there. He loves it. Better him than the rest of us. I like watching him do it and never having to do it myself. Exactly. Exactly. So now let's hear my conversation with Baz Luhrmann, the director of Elvis. Uh, I was just fascinated that he talked about going to CinemaCon, as Joseph Kaczynski did, as you just heard, and that they were both there together with these movies that they were hoping would bring back movie theaters, and they absolutely did. Elvis is this huge maximalist musical story of the life of Elvis Presley, and is so different from Top Gun Maverick, but really had the same uh, magical power of bringing people back in. And it's interesting hearing uh, Baz Luhrmann kind of celebrating that success and talking about being back on the Oscar campaign circuit, more than 20 years since Moulin Rouge, and seemingly enjoying it a lot more, being able to kind of bask in the success a little bit more. Um, He was such a pleasure to talk to. So let's hear that conversation with Elvis director Baz Luhrmann. Baz Luhrmann, thank you so much for talking to us. You are at the beginning of a whirlwind couple of days, I think. You're back in the States after hopefully a nice uh, holiday break. How how are you feeling gearing up for... um, I mean, you've been on the award season rodeo before, so how are you feeling with this round of it? I think, yeah, the, I was actually thinking about this morning because you're right. This is the exact moment that I'll actually be in a room 
with all the other uh, filmmakers. And I mean, when I say filmmakers, I don't mean directors. I mean anyone who's done anything on a film. So um, as Peter Weir, who got his beautiful award the other day at the Oscars, much deserved, and who actually taught me how mm. to use a camera. He was the one who came to me on Strictly Bore and I'd never made a film. And he said, you know, look in that end of the camera and all that. And I mean, I knew how to use camera, but... but <laughs> did but, you but know it, him or did he just like well. see up and coming? No. Okay, so you had already known him before you made your uh, first he was He was such a hero of mine growing up. In fact, when I saw something like Gallipoli, I would have gone like, oh, Australians can make films anywhere in the world because that film was actually set in Turkey. And all of our... We all had a grandfather or a, a relation who'd been in that terrible battle. And the fact that he made it all in Australia probably set the clock for me. The other thing that Peter Weir did, and I'm somewhat known for this, but just to point out, it's not that radical. It's not as radical as people think. If you look at Gallipoli, this is a classic First World War picture, same um, world as All Quiet on the Western Front, but a young actor's in a very young actor that was almost virtually completely unknown. I've actually done one other film where they revoiced him in America because you couldn't understand his accent. His name was Mel Gibson. And <laughs> uh, but this time he uses his Aussie accent, but he does a running sequence. And I was talking to Peter Weir the other day, you know, when he received his honorary Oscar, about how in that running sequence, Michel Jarre's sort of synth pop track called mm-hmm. Oxygen is used. And it's completely contemporary. It was completely contemporary, modern piece of pop, really, and they use that in that running sequence. So that was probably one of the first times I saw classical imagery but with contemporary soundtrack allowing you to feel or as, as a sort of doorway into the emotion of the scene, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, I, I was just saying um, there, I went to that. Now, this is the first time I'm going to be in a room with – oh, sorry, what he said I thought was wonderful. And I really believe in this because I come from a – uh, an acting teaching background. I mean, Kate uh, Blanchett and I and Sam and Judy Davis and Mel Gibson, we all come from the same school. And that school actually does acting teaching as well as I was directing and creating shows. But he said, I wish it just could be called crew, meaning mm. not cast and crew, because it is truly, in the end, filmmaking is truly everyone plays this kind of ensemble collective part in this telling of a story. Yeah. Say that because the rooms will be full of cast and crew of all the other films that are, are, are out there. So it's kind of a, look, there's the award bit and, you know, winning is lovely, but I think what's really important is getting it down to this group of nominations or a group that we all say, look, let's put light on these extremely different films. And that's just really good for movies. And then yeah, we also, yeah, yeah. I call it the big fiesta because it's like, we all get to catch up with each other because most, yeah. I mean, everyone from Kate, I mean, I've known Kate since she was, you know, n- not acting actually. Her, Kate's sister was CM's assistant at one point. Huh. Mm. So From when? From like, from, from one uh, of your uh, movies? From, no, no, no. Uh, well, actually, uh, actually, I'm pretty sure Kate's sister, who's a designer now, was working on one of our theatrical, might have been La Boheme, might have been on the opera. Oh, wow. I think so. You know? Wow, so you guys have a lot to catch up on. Yeah, it's just nice to be in a room with other filmmakers. It's, it's that time of year we all get to catch up with each other. And I think you've got to, you know, we've all got to stand there and say, well, well, talk about the shows and celebrate everybody and celebrate everyone who did so much to make the movie, particularly given the extraordinary circumstances I know that we all went through and on, on our movie, Elvis, which almost didn't happen, you know, that it, yeah. so it, you know, very famously, the lead actor, someone says the to me one day. The most famous COVID yeah. case <laughs> there so was, I'm, I think. I mean, look, I'm doing a scene and I'm in Australia. It's the scene where Parker leads Austin Butler through the crowd and we're, we're about to rehearse it. At, my, the, um, at the circus or at the carnival uh, or which Vegas, scene? At Vegas. Oh, in do Vegas, you know okay. That, do you know that scene where everyone, basically Elvis gives himself to the audience yeah. And I actually was looking at the real footage we've got that's never been seen, hasn't been released, where you see Parker grab him hmm. and he guides him through the crowd. It's Elvis's idea, but Parker goes, right, I, I don't want my merchandise to get hurt, mm-hmm, grabs mm-hmm. him. 
we're about to do that scene and the first assistant comes up to me and he says, I think Tom's got that flu thing. Mm. And then it was called, you know, it wasn't coronavirus, called. Coronavirus, I think is what we were Coronavirus, thank you, yeah. thank you. Exactly, <laughs> Katie. And honestly, 10 seconds later, we were shut down. I was locked down in the state, hazmat suits. Film was gone. Yeah. The film was gone. It was over. And I always remember the moment when Tom, Tom actually suffered with Rita and he went back to the U.S. And I reckon I'll, I've done all sorts of movies, but I'll never forget the moment when at first it was kind of not, I wouldn't say fun, but I sort of felt a bit of relief, like I don't have to deliver the movie. You know, I love us. We said, woohoo, I'm, you know, <laughs> a few cocktails and hanging out for the first week, going, this is not too bad. But then this sort of abyss opened up in front of me mm-hmm. of, wow, this is actually going to go away. This, this is beyond my control. And telling Austin that, and he had given, you know, two years of his life up to that point, and he just sort of refused to accept that. He said, I'm not going home. I'm going to double down on, on the physical rehearsal, on the study of Elvis. I'm not going anywhere. And that sort of inspired me, actually, to go back to work on text and script and try and work out how could we pull it back together. And finally, Tom very bravely said, look, we thought it would be over in February. That was two years ago. <laughs> how funny was that? <laughs> and then he came back and then, of course, I honestly, honestly, the way that every collaborator from Mandy Walker to CM, I mean, obviously we, we're very close, but everyone just held that film like a precious baby in the airline. And so we, we knew that we were privileged to be making a movie, but the film came in on time and under budget, and that does not happen to me a lot, Katie. So. <laughs> I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. Austin has talked about how he really immersed himself, used that break to further immerse himself in Elvis. And I know you commit yourselves to your movie really, you know, intensely as well. But did you feel like you had to do the same immersion that he did in that break time? Or were you able to, I mean, you you step back, you reworked the story. It seems like it was different for you and how you held on to Elvis in that break time. Yeah, I think what I just mentioned then was this feeling of the abyss. I think we'd all have to, if we're telling this story, we all have to remind ourselves what that period felt like because let's be real. It's still around, but we've emerged from it and how quickly we forget. I never thought, I remember when we first landed here and we were releasing the Doja Cat single and we rehearsed with Doja and I was running in the desert actually out near Palm Springs where we're about to go at yeah. Coachella. And I never thought I'd be running with 100,000 people, you know, in the middle of the desert at a a music festival to release a song, you know. But so we've moved on somewhat in our mind. But just try and remember what that was like. And I felt this immense feeling of this abyss and this idea that everyone was talking about that the the movie business already on its knees was over. Yeah. And, And I said to Warners, I'm not making this movie unless you guarantee me not just that it's going to go into the theatres, no, no putting it on streaming first. Well, which but, is what something they were doing actively. Uh, act- actively. Finishing the movie, actively. Yeah. I mean, and, and great films, you know. Dune yeah. went on. Like I, 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 when I arrived back in the States after we got through it all the first time, first thing I did was go into Man's Chinese and to see Dune on IMAX. And that is a film that demands to be seen in the theatre. 
we were making a movie that demands to be seen in the theater. And I said, double the window. Now they did because I hardly ever make movies. So they were like, oh, I guess <laughs> he's so annoying, but okay. <laughs> and I think we knew that we were, it was more than we're just making a movie. We knew that we had to prove that audiences do want to sit in dark rooms with strangers and commune and laugh and cry together and not feel lonely. And that was yeah. our mission. You know, yeah, that, I think, Katie, that was really the big thing. Really felt that like almost like it was um, a task beyond just making a movie. That's what we felt. Did you have that moment in 2020 that I've heard other filmmakers say, too, of like, is this ever going to come back? Did you wonder if movie theaters were gone forever in those early no. days? Um, no. You kept the faith. Well, I wouldn't say I kept the faith, but remembering that I grew up in this tiny country town and we, we had for a time the local cinema. My dad ran it. When you come up in that experience, you understand just how precious it is for human beings to get out of their house and actually be together. Now, did I know what form the theatrical experience would take? Did I think the theatrical experience wouldn't transform or they wouldn't have to find a good relationship with streaming? I knew changes were afoot, but I've never believed that human beings won't actually want to get out and commune over storytelling. I didn't believe that. And I was reminded, you know, in the 50s when television came along, Everyone said movies are dead, movies are dead, yeah, movies yeah. are dead. And, and honestly, movies just got bigger. Look, when I was growing up, we only got second-run prints in our theatre. The movies that came to us had already been shown show prints in the city, but a really big treat for us was to get in a bus and go all the way to Sydney and see, you know, Tommy in quadraphonic sound. You know, they would have brought in extra sound in a very theatrical environment because they made the cinematic experience more cinematic, more theatrical, and more of a live experience, more visceral. And I think yeah. that's where we have to go in the movies. You know, I love streaming. I, there are dramas I go and I say, fantastic thing for me to see alone on this here iPad. You know, mm-hmm. great, tucked up in bed. But there are other experiences that we have to offer. And I think we're just going through a period of being reminded that the movies – are a theatrical experience, you know? Yeah. I mean, Top Gun Maverick is such a different movie from Elvis in so many ways, but it was having this box office run around the same time. They feel kind yeah. of twinned in my mind. Do you feel an, an affinity toward that movie is like kind of two halves of the formula of proving that people want to come to theaters? Big, big. I mean, Tom did an, Tom did an incredible job holding the line. You know, we yeah. all know, look, look, gee, the sequel to Top Gun, Tom, what's he going to do? With that, And he held the line and he held the line because he's obsessed with quality. And I think we're twins in some regard in that it's not like we run off and do a movie a year, you know what mm-hmm, I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think Tom absolutely was making a big screen experience and we were always making a big screen experience, you know. Yeah. Sure, it's had an amazing, I mean, one of the un- accidental and very positive things that Warner's discovered out of me being a bit belligerent about doubling the the gap from when it goes from the theatre into the HBO Max streaming. What I didn't realise, I was already didn't say, well, and, and no VOD, video on demand, and it four times indexed what mm-hmm. it was going to do. So it, they went, like, this is a good idea. Look at this. If you have a big theatrical um, event and it plays in a theatre, the video on demand, a lot of people go like, look, I just can't get out, but I will pay the extra money to have it at home. And then we were the number one film on HBO Max and the year ends with us being the number one non-sequel movie of the year, you know. And, and yeah. look, now everyone goes, oh, that seems to make sense, but I can tell you, when I went to CinemaCon, the idea that Elvis would bring older audiences and younger audiences out, and that's what we needed, that was no way was that a sure bet. There yeah. was a lot of, I'm, I come, you know, son of a theatre owner. And it, it's really a big risk what you put yeah. in your theatre. You know, so we went out there and we went to Arizona and, you know, bless Tom and Austin and everybody went out there and gave it their all to say, look, trust us, this is an experience worth having in the theatre. 
Was no. that a moment? I don't, can't remember if Elvis showed in its entirety there, but was that a moment when you realized it was going to work for an audience in that way, or did you just always know it was going to work for an audience in the in the way you imagined? I knew before. Actually, you can sort of tell we did early test screenings, mm-hmm. and I used them a lot. I mean, because I come from the theater, I think they can be very useful because you're really feeling the audience, and you know they can be frightening, but you see it in amongst the audience. I sit right amongst the audience, and from the get go. The one thing we knew was that we had an extraordinary star performance from Austin. Just there was never a moment in the even the earliest test screenings that the audiences in their comments, I sat behind young girls going, oh, Elvis, right? Mm-hmm. And they were all variety, all backgrounds, and halfway through they were going like, kneeing, you know, elbowing each other and laughing and clapping and, by the end of it, they were in love with Elvis come Austin. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I knew that we, we were sitting on an extraordinary performance, that I do. And I don't say that lightly because, you know, that kind of level of discovery, I mean, I went through it with Leonardo when he was 19 on Romeo and Juliet, you know? Yeah. That doesn't happen every day. It just doesn't. Yeah, it's interesting because Austin's talked about you kind of walking him through the idea of the sudden fame, which, you know, Leonardo was famous before Romeo and Juliet, but kind of exploded in a similar way. And I wonder what level of protection you feel like you have to have over a star like that. And maybe it's the same when you're working on Moulin Rouge with Nicole Kidman. Like, I know you talk about being a really actor-forward director, but when you've got someone who is so unknown, like, what do you feel like, what kind of handholding do you feel like you have to do to launch into this world? They're very different in a way. I mean, Nicole and I are genuine and deep friends. We met actually doing, I edited Vogue once along with CM and we, I said, oh, gee, it's crazy. I don't know Nicole Kibben. And she was with, with her then husband, you know, he of the recent successful sequel. <laughs> um, and we came to LA and we shot and we just clicked. It was like brother, sister from day one. And Nicole had been living that extremely high-profile life from a very young age. But Leonardo became that, like literally like the Beatles on Romeo and Juliet. Before that he was known, but I can remember, you know, one of the things we had to explore in Elvis was the sound of keening. Keening is not just girls screaming. It's a very particular sound that, I mean, I like loud, but look, I went to a BTS concert. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, at City Field. And you hear keening, and it's a sound that's kind of a high-pitched sound, and it makes your ears bleed, you know. Was that for, for Elvis research or just coincidentally you went to a BTS concert? Uh, no, I was in, I'd been exploring a little bit for Elvis for sure, actually, because I thought, gee, who has the same sort of devoted, they're called the army, mm-hmm. you know, and indeed BTS do. Um, but I'd been involved with different music producers in that world, making uh. music for a long time. So I kind of knew the world. And they were blowing up and no one kind of understood why, you know. And very few people can fill a stadium like City Field these days, you know. So, But I heard that sound and I remember being with Leonardo. We were opening Romeo and Juliet in London. And I remember hearing that sound then, this kind of keening. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of like... And we have it in the movie. Like when you see the girls in the movie, they're not just screaming. You know, there's this story when Elvis went first on stage and it's in the movie and he wiggles. He doesn't know what's happening. And he actually says, why are they doing, what's going on? And in the pink Marian, suit, right? The, uh, yeah, that, that's exactly. It, yeah. And Marion Kaiska, who is Sam's, you know, um, the record owner's, assistant she said and I was shushing all the girls stop stop yelling stop doing that let him sing his music and she said in the next moment there was this old woman standing up screaming like a mad woman and I realized it was me and (laughs) and she's in the movie doing that you know when she does the funny scream that's really happened and what she's really saying is you had this Elvis was able to elicit from an audience this out-of-body experience and they literally and I think that comes we touch upon that because you see Austin, and this was told to me by this the little boy in the scene, the um, African-American little boys that Elvis hung out with. He said, we were too cool for that, but Elvis would go into the Pentecostal tents and get into a religious state. And mm-hmm. I think there's a connection. He certainly thought there was. Sam Bell told me there was. A connection between Elvis's exposure to the Pentecostal experience and gospel and the way in which he performed and literally during his entire career, 
whipped up the audience and literally gave himself to the audience. You know, that yeah. line when the preacher grabs him and says, leave him be, he's with the spirit, that's exactly what Sam Bell told me happened. And I just put it in the movie, you know. Yeah, watching the movie again recently, I was... The um, I think it's trouble. The when he causes the riot at the yes. at the stadium. Um, the way that the cameras and there's like footage that's like recreating what was in the period and the presence of that in his life. And I don't. I think it's oversimplifying to say it's a movie about like the downside of fame and publicity in that way. But it mm-hmm. felt very pointed. And you know, you've yes. witnessed this with Leonardo. You've witnessed this for yourself. Like, what what is the relationship between Elvis and the camera? And is that your relationship with like the camera and being photographed and witnessed? constantly, all the time in your life. Okay, it's a very interesting thing that you bring up because we had a challenge in bringing out older audiences and -hmm. they came. Now, we did get older Elvis fans, but remember, the old Elvis fans were very anti our movie to begin with. They were cynical about Austin. To be honest, so was Priscilla, understandably. They were cynical about what I would do. Once the film came out, they came, but... We also managed to create a whole new fan base. And, and the biggest constituency of that is like 16, 17-year-old girls, like young girls. I say this for a reason. And I've been thinking about it. And, yes, there's the Austin Elvis blur. But, you know, you've got to think this music is, has no relationship to anything they're interested in. And they didn't, he was just this, you know, the fat guy in the white jumpsuit. I think they have a tremendous connection to this idea of camera fame, of instant mm-hmm, mm-hmm. camera fame, because they're all living their own stardom online. You know, the whole Insta generation is, and they've seen the pitfalls of that, you know, that you can be really, really famous overnight, but it's, it's also suddenly you're dealing with, you can't peel off fame. And mm-hmm. I've got a well-known name and, I, you know, I've lived with being a public figure since I was young because I, I was quite well known as a theatre director and an opera director and then I made my first movie, Strictly Boring, when I was 29, you know, 28 actually. But my face isn't famous like an actor's face. When your yeah. face is 40 foot high, and that's what we were talking to Austin about, is, you know, just forget the keening women and a lot of boys too, Right. I love the boy watching him on TV, just a a nod. Of course, it wasn't only girls. I know. Isn't that funny? I mean, like, you know, it's it's as if, like, you know, the 50s was a zero, you know, there was no no queerness in the 50s. (laughs) No no young guy was sitting around going, like, my God, he's hot, right? Now, um, but I think the actor, when you hit that level of love, I mean, I've seen rocket scientists or people of great Nobel Peace Prize winners go, what's Nicole really like? Like Mm -hmm. their relationship to this giant face. And you can't peel that face off, you know, once you've crossed that line. And you you can live with it really well. I mean, I I think Leonardo's managed to curate that immense, iconic fame really, really well. He hasn't changed since the day I met him. He's only cared about seriously acting and the environment. And yeah. Austin is managing to do it really well too, but it's a shock. I mean, it's, it's for him, by the way, I think more than anybody else, his success as an actor, like the sheer virtuosity of his acting in this movie. I mean, he was great in Quentin's picture. I got the phone call from Denzel saying, you won't believe how hard he works, but the virtuosity of what he achieves in this movie and I don't know anyone who doesn't come to me and go, like, like well, I did not see that coming. And in addition, you know, you get breakthrough performances where someone's great acting, you're great acting. Then you get breakthrough performances where you go, this person is a star, star quality. Very rarely do you get what I call the Marlon Brando, mm. you know, or the Leo, which is you are a great actor and you have star quality. When that yeah. comes together, boom, and so rare. And curating that, is it's something you have to think about. What is fortunate for Austin is that he looks very young, but he's actually turned 30. And I think it's yeah. happening to him just at the right moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it surprised me when you said in another interview that you had to fight for Austin because he wasn't a known name. Because I would think with The Great Gatsby being such a huge success that you'd have a blank check in some ways. And, you know, obviously the studio is going to have their thoughts on it. But wh- why, why did that have to be a fight? I... 
I mean, kind of, I do have a blank check at this stage. You know, I, I, to be honest, everything I've ever said I'm going to make, ballroom dancing will never be popular in the United States. Shakespeare, are you crazy? We want ballroom dancing. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I seem to be addicted to picking subjects that are not only rusty, but might even be perceived as cheesy. You know, it's not like people were like, oh, the great Gatsby, what an exciting, you know, the, you know <laughs> that, that's a franchise waiting to happen. Um, but I love to go in and say, well, not only what they were, but why were they so profoundly exciting or visceral or why did they leave an imprint on culture? So that seems to be my lot in life. I mean, in the end, you're right. If I believed in Austin, then I'm going to get that to happen. But I work with everyone and I do want to sit with the studio executives and I want to see them convinced. Mm-hmm. I want to see them go like, wow, hey, because you don't want to be in a difficult moment like the pandemic comes and they've never really believed. Uh-huh. They're my first audience. So I really worked with us a lot in the preparation in acting and creating an acting environment, putting them around other actors, being ensemble. I mean, I'm making, I don't show actors standing against, you know, sometimes you see screen testers standing against a grey wall holding a piece of paper. No, he's in full costume makeup. I'm learning about the character. I'm learning about the script. And what I do have, yes, if I decide on someone that people are going to believe in my reputation for working with actors and, you know, actors finding new new parts of themselves or revealing the new I mean, Nicole in Moulin Rouge, Nicole will tell you, you know, there's a lot of people wanted that role. Yeah. And at that stage in her career, it's hard to believe, but at that stage of her career, she was not the Nicole Kidman we know today. It helped make her the Nicole Kidman we know today, I would say. And, and uh, I can't say it, but she will tell you that. And um, But let me say this, like you really want everyone all to be on board and you want to create an yeah. environment where we're all on board because I knew the incredible mountain Austin had to climb, not just. Here's the thing, for the years that it took to make that movie, I knew there would be endless comment out there about, but X would have been better. Why would you cast uh-huh. this skinny kid? Can you imagine you're doing all that work, but at the same time people out there are nice saying, and that's okay, that's okay, you know? You've got to carry that weight. There is another correlation, Katie, that's very real. And this, this I can't write a blank check on. I might believe in someone who's unknown. I might believe in an actor, and I do. I see it as my lot in life. Even way back in Strictly Ballroom, there was a character actor called Bill Hunter no longer with us. Bill Hunter was known for playing policemen in serious characters. I really thought in my first movie... He could really play Barry Fife, a very comic and absurd character. Um, I fought for that opportunity and gave him that opportunity. He then went on to do that kind of work afterwards and became very good at it. Every actor has more strings on their instrument to play than Mm. any studio want to let them play. And I see it as my duty to help them get that instrument and allow them to play every note on their instrument they possibly can. The correlation is the amount of budget you get. Mm-hmm. So I might say, no, I insist upon this unknown actor, but the amount of money a studio is prepared to risk as opposed to, guess what, doesn't it feel good if we say, you know, Brad Pitt's in it, who is, by the way, you know, a, terrific, a fantastic actor and a star at the same time, you know. Sure. You know? And, and that happens. They come to me and say, look, yeah, but couldn't you put X in it? And I just believe in actors, to be honest. I believe my job is to not only... I can't do it for them, but to create the environment for them, to work in ensemble groups, to lift actors up, and most importantly, to protect them and give them the opportunity to reveal parts of their instrument and things that they can do. They know they can do, but others don't believe in. I see that as my job. And I also wondered if you ever actually thought that a known famous person could become Elvis in that way. Not that you have to have someone who no one's ever seen, but it it seems like it would be a lot harder to believe that level of transformation? I mean, um, I won't swing into it because it ends up creating like all sorts of clickbait. Not that you would do it, but but other people (laughs) listen. But it is known that I I did work with other well-known actors and one of them is an incredibly gifted, iconic uh, music performer himself. He's also really talented as an actor, right? And I think he's great. I mean, 
He is great. But I think what we did was I don't do auditions so much as workshops. Mm-hmm. So I create a workshop environment. It can take days, you know, or at least full days of doing scenes, um, costume testing, just exploring the character. And I say when an actor walks into my room, what can I learn about the script from them? I, I take the pressure off them. But I think what we discovered was if you are an icon already, a musical icon, who's somewhat in the lineage and DNA of Elvis, yeah, yeah, it would be very hard to sort of sublimate you in your own iconography. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back on Thursday with our roundtable conversation discussing the SAG Award nominations and the Golden Globes and much more. In the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com, on Twitter at HWD, and me, I am at Katie Rich. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.